Hello everyone and welcome to our virtual 67 Pall Mall. Uh, lastly for today we'll speak with Conal McKenzie and, and Alex Bruce from Adelphi Whiskies who will take us through a selection of their very best and favourite whiskies. Um, and for now we're very pleased to be speaking with the ever popular Jasper Morris MW who returns to discuss his top six Premier Crew vineyards in the Cote d'Or. Jasper, as I'm sure you know, is the author of Inside Burgundy and runs a website of the same name. So please do chat away at the side, share with us what you're drinking, where you're drinking it from, and share on social media with hashtag 67fromhome. As usual, at the end, we'll have 15 minutes, but Jasper's very happy for you to post questions in the chat box as we go along. So I hope you have a great bottle of Burgundy ready and are sitting comfortably. Hello, Jasper. How are you? All well, thank you, Ronan. Uh, Good to see you again. Yeah. Well, we've got a bit of a change here in Burgundy in that uh, the last couple of days the weather has turned and I think the same in the UK. Yeah. And it's been noticeably wetter after that beautiful, beautiful sunshine we've had for most of the spring. Yeah. But I can also report that the growers are, uh, well, they're very happy, but also almost a bit worried about the potential size of the 2020 crop because the uh, bunch set was very good. And since that time, the um, flowering has passed off very well, and they're looking at uh, really enormous volumes potentially. So okay. um, I'm sure that'll all sort itself out. That's Is it a bit too late to get any spring frost now? Oh, yes. So past that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, past that. Of course, you can have hailstorms, you can have other forms of disease. Yeah. Um, you know, everything seems, seems set fair at the moment. So let's, let's hope that it continues that way. Right. Okay, Jasper, well, thank you very much again, as always. And uh, yeah. Yeah, well, um, uh, keep, keep the chat going on the side there so that uh, we can see who's, who's in this evening and uh, what you're drinking. Many of you, I hope, will have the samples from 67 Pall Mall and uh, others will be sitting there with your, your own choice wines. Right. And uh, you're coming in from all sorts of different places. So that's good to hear as well. So what I want to look at today is uh, the best of the white wine villages uh, of the Cote d'Or. Uh, it's not just the Cote de Bone. We've added one in from the Cote de Nuit. And uh, for each village, I've taken a leading Premier Crew, one of my handful of favourites, because it's a bit boring if you only have a single favourite, but I've chosen one of my favourites from each village. And this is going to give us an opportunity to think about where white grapes are best planted in the Cote de Bone, and also um, uh, who's doing what with them, what the vintages are like, one or two winemaking uh, hints, ideas of what's good. And by the end of the evening, I hope we'll have a, a very nice survey of what white burgundy is about just at the moment. So uh, if we look at the Cote de Bone, we have in our minds already an idea of which villages are most suited to uh, having white grapes. And it's, it's not always exactly right. I'm gonna ask Ronan to put up a map of the Cote de Bone. This map, unfortunately, is not of the same quality as the remaining maps that we're going to have a look at. So bear with me if you don't mind on that. Uh, and uh, we, will, we will work our way through. So the uh, villages that we've actually got to play with uh, tonight are gonna to be Chassagne Maraichet, Puligny Maraichet, Saint-Aubin, in between the two, Merceau, uh, that's four, Bone is five, and then we head off into the Cote de Nuit for the last one. So broadly speaking, if you've got one of those big maps that's got all the vineyards of the Cote de Bayonne uh, shaded in different colours, you see a, a passage from Merceau through to Chassagne-Maraichet where they use a different colour scheme, 
saying these villages are basically white. But I'd be slightly tempted to redraw the map. Already from one point of view, we've got an issue that quite a lot of growers are planting white grapes where they used to be red. And sometimes that's acceptable and sometimes I think it's a bad idea. I mean, anybody can do what they want, of course they can. But I think they're doing it much more for reasons of um, commerce, the fact that they maybe have only got red wines, they want to bung in a couple of whites or they are not selling their reds so well. So I'm going to redraw slightly this map of the Cote de Bone. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to come in here and say, okay, we should basically be left of that purple line. We should be uh, red grapes. Uh, actually, there are a few parts of Sontenay which work quite well in white. And I'm also going to draw a little bit along here, saying that the lower part of chassain Maraché should also be uh, red. But we've got uh, almost a triangle of, uh, I, I'm actually going to remove that line because it's going to get in my way a little bit. Uh, I'm going to um, try and rub that out. I haven't put the eraser correctly. Uh, no, I have. Rub that out, enjoying playing with these new, new tools. Uh, but if we take a look here, uh, I'm going to draw my line again. Uh, we've got what I consider to be the first classic white wine triangle. I'm going to make this line slightly at an angle to show that the bottom part of Chassain Maraschot shouldn't be in, uh, in white. But broadly speaking, here's the first great white wine triangle. So you've got Saint-Aubin at the top, Chassain Maraschot, and then Puny Maraschot. So we're going to have all three of those. And there are stylistic comparators between those three villages. Whereas I reckon that our next village is really uh, uh, quite different. And, uh, and Merceau, I actually think of the wines as being sort of rounded in shape. Uh, and uh, I'm happy therefore to, to draw it in a different way. And we can also play around with a little bit of white wine up in Saint-Romain is mostly white and quite a bit of Osé Duress works well as white. Montley, you can have some whites, but mostly you shouldn't. Volnay, you can't and don't. Pomar, you can't and don't. When I say can't, the rules say that you're not allowed to. Bone, there's a lot of white wine in bone. I'll come into detail of that when we get to a bone. There's too much white, probably because there's so much red available and it doesn't all sell all that easily that people have moved to it, but that's become whiter than it ought to do. Certainly, no bone has become a bit whiter than it should. Uh, Charlet bone is mostly red. Uh, once we now get to the Hill of Corson, we have uh, the classic white Grand Cru. We're not going to do any Grand Cru's tonight deliberately. So you've got the Charlemagne bit there, and then you've then got a continuation which also works in white along the top there. So that's broadly where the whites uh, work well in, in um, Cote de Bone. And I'll just give a little blob for Sontenay because there are a couple of bits of Sontenay that work quite well. My gobs disappeared. Great, um, so we, could, we can lose uh, that map and start talking about the individual wines and villages and vintages. So the great white burgundy years don't necessarily fit in with the great red burgundy years. Um, the same weather conditions could have different results because actually the grapes or the vines work at a slightly different timescale. We'll see that in a couple of the years we're gonna look at. Uh, 2019 is too early so far. Um, it's a small crop of intense wines, which should be pretty good. And my first feeling is that it's going to work in both colors. 
2018 we thought was going to be a red vintage and not a white vintage because it was an immense crop in white but possibly it was almost saved by the size of the crop because what could have been very highly alcohol over concentrated slightly heavy wines were tamed a bit by the size of the crop so actually i found i liked my 2018 whites when i tasted them in barrel uh, through thailand the last year a lot more than i expected to but probably it'll still be remembered more as a red wine vintage then we come to 2017 and our first two wines are from 2017 and from the start people preferred it as a white wine year and oddly enough and it's very rare this it was a much bigger crop in red than in white uh, the reason being that a fair sized crop set in the first instance where there was frost in april and it wasn't one of the horrible frost years apart from after chablis but where there was frost it was more typically in the white wine vineyards lower parts of chassaint Maraché and also in Saint-Aubin uh, and then the other key factor is that during the flowering, it was exceptionally hot when the Chardonnay flowered, and the Chardonnay always flowers a little bit before the Pinot Noir, and it was less hot when the Pinot flowered, but it was too hot for the Chardonnay, and some of the flowers couldn't cope with it, and they're bolting. So overall, uh, it's a smaller crop in, in white than red, and it's a really good one. It follows on from 2014 as being a year uh, in which the temperatures didn't get too hot at the end of the season, which then enabled uh, people to have a slightly wider choice of picking dates in the whites. So if we could have a little look at that chassain Morisho map, we can weigh in with the first wine. Great, so this is a slightly uh, uh, finer definition map um, than the previous one was, uh, which is great, and so will the rest of our maps be. Um, so here again, we can look at the whole map of uh, Chassain Maraschais and uh, I will see if I'm elegant enough to be able to draw uh, a careful line which really shows uh, what I think uh, are the white wine territories. So if we start at the top we have Les Baudines, Les Embrasés, Tête du Clos, maybe Grand Clos, so I'll include half of Grand Clos, certainly Petit Clos, more or less Ferrand but not quite 100%, then Chongain, Caire, Pinderia going up. This area is definitely a white wine area. Then at the other end of the village, but high up again, Chaumet, Verger, Macherelle, a bit mixed, Chenevot, um, and uh, into here, this one, this lovely little vineyard, uh, Blanchot dessus. Obviously, the Grand Cruz, Vide Bourse, and on up to uh, En Remy. All that is definitely white wine territory. The rest is either red wine territory, particularly when it's lower down, or in between the two here, Maltrois is probably 50-50 for me, and Clos Saint-Jean is slightly more red than white. I still haven't quite been able to nail down why you should suddenly have that little area that, uh, that does better in, uh, or at least as well in red, when the rest of the higher slope uh, is clearly all, all white country. So we are going to take um, a wine out of uh, Caire. So if we take a look at Caire, it, um, it comes down here through to here. That's all the Caire. And you can see it's got different names. You may not be able to see this map cl uh, clearly enough to be able to work out which name is which. But you've got En Caire, uh, not Chongan below. I should, I should just cut off that. Uh, Vin Derriere, that's all, it never appears under its own name, that's part of Caire. 
this little thing just called Chassin, which is part of Cairo, and then Les Combats at the top. So four little sections that make up Cairo in total. It's uh, 10 and a half hectares, 10.68 in total. The interesting fact about this vineyard is that apart from the bit at the top called uh, um, Combat and maybe the little bit called Chassin, but the rest of it, the vines, the rows of vines run from the bottom of the vineyard up to the top. And that's really uh, quite important um, insofar as that it means that you, if there are different soil types, you get something of everything. And the wisdom of the village is that you really want to have these rows that go all the way up. Rafi's asked, might it be the best white wine uh, vineyard in Chassin Marache? And I'm going to offer you a few choices, but I'll offer you uh, Caire. I'm going, to, I'm going to play. I'm really enjoying playing, so I'm going to play now. I'm going to offer Caire as an option, La Romane as an option, possibly Grand Rouchot as an option. Um, our little thing here. Um, the Blanchot de Sioux, Vide Bourse, those would be my, my first selections. And then you can play around with which growers got what. I could have included Grand Montagne, Environdo. Uh, some people make some beautiful wines elsewhere, but those are going to be my top selections for Chassin Maranchet white wines. So Cairo means little stones, and it has a white soil with lots of little stones in, as you'd expect. Um, it's a little bit more marl at the top of the slope and uh, a little bit more limestone at the bottom. Um, so they all add their, their little subtleties to it. The particular grower we've got tonight is Jean-Noël Gagnard. Jean-Noël, born in 1926, uh, sort of the doyen um, who's still around. I hope all is well. I did walk past his house the other day and the, all the uh, shutters were up. So uh, maybe, maybe he's not at home anymore, I'm not sure. Um, but it's his daughter, Caroline, Caroline Estime, who has made the wine since 1989. Her first thing that she did when she arrived at the domain was instead of him making a village assign and a couple of premier crews, she started making all the different vineyards separately, uh, which is a fascinating thing to do. They have one Grand Cru, they have some Bataille Maranchet. But I have to say, at this particular winery, I think I prefer the Caire. I think it is my favorite of all her wines. Over the years, I might vary from one year to another, but consistently I would go with the Cairo. Uh, and she has the unusual feature that about a quarter of her crop comes from up here, uh, Les Combats, and three quarters comes from the southern end of the um, vineyard where my mouse is bouncing up and down. So um, she and one other grower, I think, share Combats. Um, and it all gets, she makes it separately, but then blends it together and it all appears as, as one thing uh, in the bottle. So if you want to charge your glasses, if you haven't already done so, and put the 2017 Cairo in there. Wine making is relatively uh, straightforward. It's a pneumatic press these days. Um, she doesn't crush the grapes before. I think she used to, but doesn't now. Um, nothing out of the ordinary goes into barrel. Decent crop. Some of her vineyards were very small in, in this year, but she got a decent crop in uh, 2017. And um, 15 barrels of this wine, of which um, a third, so five barrels would have been new wood. Uh, when I tasted it just before we came on air, straight after uh, opening up the sample, uh, the oak was showing reasonably prominently. I don't mind that in a young wine, uh, if I'm not planning to drink it yet. I often find with Caroline's wines is that they go a little bit sulky um, after two to three years, 
uh, three, four years, uh, so any minute now. Um, and uh, they're not amongst my favorites for, to drink through that middle period. And they get to be really, really good at about 10 years old. So I had a bottle of 2009 Caire in the last few months that was uh, in cracking form, having been a little bit awkward, a bit muscular uh, five years before then. So. Not getting um, specific detail in terms of the um, bouquet at this stage, um, which is reasonable, don't necessarily expect it, but it's a very clean white fruit, a little bit of the egg, good acidity on, on, uh, in this wine, which gives a form of precision, um, crispness to it, which is what you would expect with something called Kyrie, it's what you really want from the start, start of wine. So I'm pretty happy with um, uh, where this is now. I'm going to see, I think one or two of you are probably um, chatting on the side. Um, just stop it stamping. Uh, uh, to let me, so we can see how it's going. Uh, for some reason, huh, I'm not actually getting the chat because all that's happening is I'm getting the, I'll get rid of that. All that was happening was I was putting hearts all over my chat button, which I didn't need to do. So uh, Nick says his first Gagnard and it won't be the last. This is a domain which I'm very fond of. Um, in Chassin-Morachet, everybody uh, seems to uh, be related to somebody else in the Gagnard clan. Um, Jean-Noël Gagnard's uh, brother, Jacques Gagnard, became Gagnard de Lagrange and is now Blanc Gagnard and Fontaine Gagnard, and Jean-Marc Blanc as well. Um, and uh, Alexander says, uh, says, this is delicious. Am I right in thinking this Gagnard has had some Premox issues? Not too many. Uh, all of them have had some. I haven't had much um, from this particular uh, Gagnard, slightly more from one of the others. Um, but uh, if you're interested in the Premox question, I'm doing a Zoom webinar tomorrow night, not the 67 pound mile, so I apologize for uh, hijacking this uh, promotional moment, but on my own website, www.insideburgundy.com, There'll be no wine alongside, but I'm really, I'm gonna spend an hour going into all the causes of premature oxidation, where we are today, and what we can expect in the future. So um, if there's time, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that a little bit uh, later on um, this evening, but I'm not gonna go into it too much uh, now because I wanna make sure that we have a good chance to give all the wines equal time and, and move on through. Uh, certainly, this is showing fresh, fine energy, a very good length of flavour, mixture of the fruit alongside the oak. Um, I think we have gone a little bit too far in the anti-oak feeling, uh, because I don't see why a wine that is designed to last a long time uh, shouldn't have oak in its use as part of the flavour, as long as it doesn't drown the fruit later on. Um, but uh, you know, that's something we can look at in relation to uh, each of these wines. Oddly enough, when I did my homework, I discovered that almost all of them um, used very similar amounts of new oak. So we're between 25% and 33%, pretty much right across the board here. So um, Caroline Gagnon is one of the bigger owners of Cairo. She's got one of the 10 hectares. Um, and unless there's any, any, any more uh, thoughts on that, we're still on the first wine, Munia, just asked. We will um, start to move on to, to our second wine. So, I'm just going to enjoy my last little bit. It's just some more issue. 
Ja. Right. Um, Caroline is not an early or a late picker. She's in the middle. She picked on, uh, I think, started on the 1st of uh, September in uh, uh, 2017. Um, and, um, well, yeah, I, am, I really like the, the aftertaste on that. Um, but the next person we're going to talk about is Olivier Lamy of the main Hubert Lamy, named after his father. Um, the uh, interesting characteristic here is that he has become one of the earliest pickers of all. Now you don't expect that in Saint-Aubin because you're tucked away a little bit in a, in a side valley. It's normally considered to be a cooler spot. You'd normally expect people to be picking later there. And he's gone earlier and earlier, not just because he's, he's uh, a fanatic for the sort of um, uber mineral style of wine, but it's more because he's such a fanatic in the vineyards, so meticulous in what he does, that his grapes just naturally get ripe before other people's do. And in fact, he's shown me the last couple of vintages um, a chart of what the local authorities have recorded of him and half a dozen other producers, their different ripenesses on each day going into the growing season. And it's fascinating because he has got more sugar uh, than any of the others. His grapes from that perspective are riper, but he's also kept very good acidity. So he often still has higher acidity than the others. And one of the worries is that if you let your sugar levels get up too high, your acidities may drop and uh, you may get something which is getting rather clumsy. And he seems to avoid doing that. So we'll need to take a little look into what he's doing in the vineyards, which is different from other people. And we'll also have a look at the map. Um, but firstly, what he's doing in the vineyards is that um, he has increased the density of planting he hasn't done that by planting rows in between the two other rows that he's, the, uh, that he's already got. So he sticks with his rows at one meter apart, but he is increasing the density of the plants within the rows. So the, the one where he's gone furthest of all is called um, Derriere Chez Edouard, and he's just planted a little, a little, a little bit of it um, where he's gone. Uh, here is, let's have a look. Here's Derriere Chez Edouard. That's, um, Go back to my, uh, my hearts, because they come out very... Uh, so he's planted a little bit of Derriere Edouard by putting in three plants per meter. Uh, so they're only 33 centimeters apart. Some people thought that he was doing that in order to have a much bigger yield. That's not the case at all, because obviously the roots are fighting below the surface. And if they can't go sideways because there's too much competition, they go further down, so that's a good thing. But instead of having, let's say, six uh, to nine bunches of vines on each individual vine, he's only got two or three. So it costs him a bit more in planting. It costs him a lot more in man hours. Um, but he showed me the statistics between those vines he's got planted at this triple density and in the same plot, one still planted at the classic density. And again, he had higher alcohol, um, or sugar, let's say, potential alcohol, higher acidity, and higher dry extract. Everything was more concentrated. So he now needs to pick that a little bit earlier in order not to get the sugar levels running away from him. So uh, that's one of his exciting uh, vineyards, and that particular bottling of the very high density, he makes a separate haute densité bottling, which he now charges a great deal of money for. His other top vineyards uh, would be uh, Enremy. I'm only going to put one heart in, but he's got several plots of it. 
which overlooks the Moranche, as does the Merger dans de Chien, and then the one we're going to have now, which is uh, La Chataignière. So it used to be a certain amount of red wine in saint Aubert, it's much less now, and it's fair enough, because mostly these are really delicious um, white wine vineyards. It ain't going to last, but for the moment, they're priced well below Pilinio Arachet Premier Cru and Chassin Premier Cru. Typically, a good Premier Cru from Saint-Aubin will be the same price as a village Chassin or Pilini, or even a tiny bit less. And the second division um, Premier Cru's uh, will, will be definitely less. And then you've got village wines going up, up here and almost around the corner. So in fact, if your vineyards are here in Oremi, which gets the, uh, uh, the sunshine and is uh, almost the same exposure, it's due south here, uh, and then a plateau is very open to the sunshine. You're going to be picking these grapes maybe as much as three weeks before you'll be picking your uh, last of your village grapes right up here. So uh, within La Chateignière, one of the reasons we like this vineyard, it's facing south, but a little bit blocked by the hill here. But it's completely open from the east, so it gets the morning sunshine. And it's also open from the west, from this valley, so it gets the evening sunshine as well. So it's a really nice uh, site, but it doesn't get full on from the south uh, sunshine because the hill opposite does hide it a little bit. And uh, I'll actually show you, we've got a little pic, I don't normally bother with photographs, but uh, we can show you a little image of um, uh, the particular vineyard, the entry to the vineyard of the Clos de la Chataignière, which he, um, is owner of in the middle of uh, the general Chateaunier vineyard. I don't think he has a monopoly of the clove, but he has most of it. Here we go. Uh, you should be able to see that now. This is one of my lovely weekend walks in the most gorgeous weather. I don't know if it was the uh, um, effect of the lack of pollution that has made our weather so good. Uh, it'd be nice to, nice to think uh, that was the case and that we can actually keep pollution down afterwards. So here, Clos de la Chateaunière, it's the slope up above. You can't see from this, this particular image, but it does go well above. Um, here you've got the limestone, the hard limestone mother rock uh, down at the bottom here. And uh, you can also see a, a classic Burgundian dry stone wall. That's a bit of a foible of mine that I love doing this uh, around um, where I live. We had some old dry stone walls that had fallen in and it's really good fun. Um, Let's borrow that tool again um, to see what you can do uh, with it. So what you want is what you can see down here where you've got a stone, then one here and one there and a gap in between, and then you've got another stone going over the top. What you want to try to avoid is what's happened here, for example, where they've got several stones with the joint between the stones over several layers all running together. And that's a weakness. Uh, another one. It's, not, it's very well done, this wall. There's not too many of them. Uh, but over here on this side, you can see it classically, that's been redone, uh, and that's what it should look like. Sorry, apologies for uh, showing off my dry stone walling skills, or not. I don't do it as well as that, uh, but I do find it very interesting. And when the expert came to talk about making all the um, uh, vineyards in Burgundy, the, the special uh, uh, clima, which have been agreed um, as the... Um, Oh, what's it called? I've forgotten exactly who it is now, but the uh, international organization, UNESCO, uh, who liked to, um, who we asked and got permission to have the Burgundy vineyards made as UNESCO heritage site. Uh, the particular expert who came around was 
totally madly passionately keen on the dry stone walls and said if I'm going to give you the thumbs up you're going to have to make sure you do more of this. Right, too much talking, not enough drinking, on we go. Saint-Aubin, Châtenière, Tour de la Châtenière from Hubert Lamy. Second wine. So here we've got a reductive character. Now, classically, smell reduction, and then it's terribly easy for the brain to go into what we expect reduction to be about, um, which is the gunflint um, type uh, or um, aromatics. Um, but in fact, this one is a little bit different. And I'm getting some good notes coming up on the side there, sage and sweet flowers. Initially, when I first opened this, I got a little bit of lime juice and a little bit of fresh apple, but it has definitely got something uh, herbal, like um, after dinner, after lunch, we always have a, a tisane, an infusion, rather than a coffee. Uh, and you've got one or two of those notes there. But um, certainly Olivier Lamy is one of those growers who has worked on the reductive way of making wines. He's moved away from the small barrels, 228 litre barrels, not just because they add a little bit stronger oak, but also uh, because there is less wine in relation to the oak. And if the oak is breathing oxygen through it, you get a slightly more oxidative feel. Whereas if you use the bigger containers, they're that little bit more reductive. So most of his cellar is now 600 litre um, barrels, which gave a bit too much new oak when he started switching the whole cellar over, but now they've matured and uh, there's less of them around. Less of, less of the oak feel, I should say. He's got a nice holding of just over a hectare, 1.25 hectares. It's an um, eight and a bit hectare vineyard. So he's got plenty to work with and people always make better wine when they've got a slightly bigger volume. Very good acidity again. The apples are definitely there uh, in the background. Mm. So um, uh, Olivier is one of those people who, as well as being meticulous in the vineyards, is also being extremely careful in uh, what he does in the cellar to try to make sure that there are no oxidation problems. He's one of the first to have been experimenting with different forms of closure uh, several years before he made the move. Uh, and then he pretty much asked each different importer what they wanted. But he's quite keen on screw caps on DMs, but he would also do oak if, um, sorry, oak, uh, cork if people want to stay uh, with the classics. But every time I go, he brings out a couple of samples of different wines, experiments from the past. It could be to do with closures. It could be to do with some sign type of uh, technique uh, in the cellar and says, okay, which do you prefer of these two? Uh, so we can play around, play games. And he's clearly one of the most respected growers from the younger generation. He's a, he's a 1973 baby, so he's sort of reaching his prime, but the guys from uh, who are starting in now reached about 30, 25, 30. Uh, he's one of the people they most look up to. Great. Mm. Scott's just mentioned there on the on the chat that uh, he thinks that these wines are so tightly wound that uh, uh, they have years ahead of them. And uh, I did go to a vertical tasting at the Domain. Obviously, the further back we went, and the more it was before Olivier's, his father's wines. But we tasted back to a 1973, uh, and the wines were in, in very good uh, condition. Certainly, I have no qualms at all. 
I cracked open his village Santa Bar from 2013, which is probably my least favorite re recent white burgundy vintage and not something that's expected to age and it was holding out very nicely. And I certainly haven't had any prematurely oxidized wines myself from him. I have heard other people say they may have done, but I haven't. Good, good, good. Right, on we go. So we've started with a very precise chiseled uh, pairing, both 2017 vintage. So it's a vintage which I absolutely believe in. Um, in recent years, probably second only to 2014, some similarities, maybe not quite as much depth and personality as 2014, but very good wines with, I think, a good future ahead of them. And uh, as more and more people have corrected the, the faults of which have led to the oxidation, then uh, so I hope uh, these wines really do think um, uh, they should go ahead. There's a question about his Haute Densité offerings, which are a lot more expensive. He only makes one or two barrels of each of them. He's decided to get full value. It's not necessarily the merchants taking it. He does charge a lot for them. Uh, but also I think the expectation is people will only manage to get two or three, or will only want to have two or three bottles and then you know, buy a case of the regular one and every, every so often compare. So whether that makes some uh, good value or not, um, uh, I'm not so sure. We had an earlier question, how I compare Jean-Noël Gagnard with Fontaine Gagnard. Of all the Gagnards, Fontaine Gagnard is the one I know least well. Uh, when I try and go and visit Gagnard says, no, I'm at the vines that day. Uh, I have been a couple of times, want to go again. They were probably of the Gagnard domains, may have been the one that had the most of the premature oxidation issues, uh, but I was pretty impressed last time I visited. Um, so, um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still working on a definitive judgment there. Great. Okay. Um, so now we can take a uh, start to move on to Pilini Maraché. I hope that was all right to interrupt the two Maraches with um, uh, a Santa Bar, but at the same time, I felt better to have the two 2017s together. And actually, rather than making value judgments what I decided to do was just keep going ahead, um, going up through the vineyards um, from uh, south to north. So, back to first class. Culigny Maraîchet, don't know those words come rolling beautifully off the tongue. Les Combettes. Now what I tried to do for the most part was uh, produce uh, wines from growers in the village, but I, I didn't do that in this case, but uh, I'll, I'll explain why in a minute. Here's uh, our map of Pudigny Maraîchet, and uh, we will just take a little look then. It, it is now all white, but it wasn't. In the 19th century, there was an awful lot of red. The, the Grand Cru's were, were all white, but Pucelle was mostly red, Caire, there was a lot of red. Um, maybe one or two at the top of the slope, um, if planted, and it wasn't as much planted as it is today, it was perhaps more white. But there was a, a lot of red around in Pudigny, as in most of the other villages apart from Merceau uh, in the Côte de Bonne. Uh, now, the only Premier Cru red, there is enough to make half a barrel, one barrel of Le Caire, where the Chapuwains most of it has decided just to keep a, a tiny amount for the fun of it. Um, and there is a tiny bit up in uh, uh, Le Trezin. There's a tiny bit, maybe a tiny bit in Amo de Blany, which therefore got labeled as Blany. Otherwise, the Premier Cru's are all white, uh, and there's a minuscule amount of red village community. But basically, this is a classic white, the classic white wine, 
village for all of uh, Burgundy, all of Peterborough. And we're going to look at combat. So if I talk about my, my favorites here again, uh, do my usual thing, um, I would have to say that the, one, the two here, Caire and Pucel, right next door to the Grand Cruz, they are absolutely the tops. And a bit of Caire is called Demoiselle, even, even more of a heart with an extra heart. Um, probably after that, Clavoyant, it's on the same line on the whole as Pucel, but it does very slightly dip down. It doesn't manage the majesty of Pucel. So the other two, um, Folletier, particularly probably the lower parts, uh, Combat, maybe Champcané. Uh, I'll give Champcané a heart. So I've been quite generous with the hearts, but Caire, uh, Pucel, uh, and Combat are going to be my three absolute favorites. So Combat, Champcané, you're right up against uh, the border with Merceau. And here, in fact, uh, Combat is against the top part of Merceau Charme, and Champcané is against the, the bottom part of Merceau Perrier. Um, Champcané actually remains tasting like a Pudony for me, um, but uh, Combat, I'll leave my heart for Combat since we're talking about it, does remind me quite a lot of a Merceau. What's interesting about it is that normally the slope, as the vines come down the hillside, it's either a straight line that neither dips nor bulges outwards, or it might dip slightly, i.e. a concave slope, Combet is noticeable because it's a, con, um, a convex slope rather than concave. So it pushes out. And why that is the case, I don't know. Or at least why it's called Le Combet, I don't know. Because normally Combet would mean a little comb, a little valley. And so you'd expect it to be in a dip. And it's not at all. It's, it's pushing outwards. Um, I think I may have mentioned this in an earlier uh, Zoom webinar, that when we talked about global warming, one or two vineyards suffered slightly, in my opinion, in 2018, when they started to dry out a little bit um, before they were quite fully ready to pick. And that's a possible worry going forward with combat. But up to now, um, this is totally one of my favorites. And one of my great, great white burgundies of, of my life has been the 79 combat from Etienne Soze. When I was starting out in wine, we used a little tasting group and we would often have Combat 78 or 79 from La Flair, from Pucelle 78, 79, and Combat 79 from Sozé. And my two absolute favorites in that period, the La Flair 78 Pucelle and the Combat 79 from Sozé. And of course, um, the Sozé um, vineyards got inherited in three ways uh, through Janine um, Boyot, who married to uh, Gérard Boudot. Uh, who has been, over the last generation, has been making the wines at Sose. Then there's um, uh, Henri Boyot uh, got some of the vineyards, and the other one was Jean-Marc Boyot got the vineyards. And I think he is, is one of the great Pudigny domains, but because he's physically based in Pomar, people don't think about mentioning this domain when they're looking at what's uh, great um, uh, wines from Pudigny. And he's got Combet, he's got Champcanet, He's got Ferratier, he's got Truffier, which is actually really good with him. Uh, I think he's got Refer to, I might, might not have mentioned them all, but uh, broadly speaking, those are where his um, um, uh, vineyards are, and Truffier, Combet, Champcanet, uh, probably going to be my favourites from um, this particular domain. 
Jean-Marc has started up a little um, vineyard and winery also in the south of France. Uh, he and his wife have disappeared down there most of the time. He's past retirement age anyway. He'll pop up at uh, harvest time. But basically, uh, his daughter runs the domain with her husband, Francois Arzang, actually making the wines. And Francois has changed a few things on the red side. But he's continued with Jean-Marc Boyer's recipe on the white side. Recipe, I shouldn't say, but, but manner of making the wines. And what's quite interesting is that they use exactly the same techniques for making all their white wines. They now bought quite a few vineyards in the Maconnais, and whether it's Macon or a Montagny that they get from uh, Bourgogne grapes, or a Bourgogne Blanc from here, uh, their Pudigny Premier Cruz, uh, Grand Cru, whatever it is, they make it in exactly the same way using 25% um, uh, new oak doing a certain amount of lee stirring, uh, bottling all the wines just before the next harvest. So the only thing that's different in their management is where the grapes come from. And uh, it's quite an interesting way of doing it. Uh, it's not a right way and not a wrong way, but it's an interesting comparison for the people who say, no, my great wines need to have more oak, longer enervage, do, do this this way, that that way. Um, but uh, this to me is a go-to domain for fine white burgundy. Um, and here we have the 2015, so that's going to change your um, impression of the wine a little bit um, because, of course, it's a much richer um, uh, vintage than um, is uh, uh, 2017 that we've been having. Incidentally, Michael, it wasn't meant to be a double heart for Demoiselle. It was one heart for Demoiselle and one heart for, for um, Kyrie, but... Uh, um, they they sort of came in together, but Demoiselle is it is right up against um, Le Maraché and and it is pretty special. Right, so nice balance between the oak and the fruit. I always taste the oak young in their wines, but it always integrates really well with the fruit. There's a plumpness to the fruit. They don't go down the uh, noticeably reductive way. It's reductive enough. It's not too oxidative at all, this, um, uh, this wine, but they're not trying to make uh, something which is um, clearly reductive in the sort of costurie, rouleau, pierre um, More style at all. It's very satisfying on the palate. It's softer and richer, which is understandable of course uh, uh, given this particular vintage. I don't think you need to wait especially long for 2015 whites. Um, the other vintage I compare it to is 2009 for which many of the wines were a little bit too rich, too ripe and a little bit clumsy but if you picked early enough you can make really great powerful wines which would keep and were in balance and in 2015 it's a bit the same but uh, many more people um, got the balance right in, um, in uh, 2015 than they did in 2009. Having said which, I'm really loving the 2009s I'm drinking now. So uh, you're going to be asked to vote at the end on your two favourite wines. So you can either choose your two definite favourites or two in different styles or one for absolute favourite and one because it uh, was a surprise on the evening and gave you pleasure tonight. So you can choose how you make your choices, but we'll ask you if you're, your two favourites uh, of the evening. Incidentally, since we have um, 
the world's finest sommelier, Ronan Saburn, um, as one of our hosts tonight. Ronan, if ever you want to, you're tasting wines alongside, if ever you want to leap in and uh, give a comment on a wine. Uh, Jasper, I'm very humbled that you, you label me in such a way. And if Grant was more generous, he would have sent me the wines, but he hasn't. Oh, right. It's miserable bastard, Grant. But uh, <laughs> next time, next time we'll make sure you have them. Thank you very much for the invite. Yeah, okay. Never mind. Um, so, yum, yum. Keep the questions um, um, uh, coming. I see we've just got one. Do I think that Pudini is the best drunk a couple of years after the equivalent chess science? It really is going to depend on both the producer uh, and the vintage, naturally the vintage. Um, and uh, also where, which vineyard uh, you're looking at. I suppose there may be more wines in Pudini that you might keep, uh, keep for longer. Um, I like to keep whites for a long time if I possibly can. Um, so I've you know, still got stuff from the late 90s and early 2000s, which are uh, giving me pleasure. And they seem slightly to have ridden out the premature oxidized uh, phase, which is interesting. And I will be talking about tomorrow night on that Zoom webinar. Um, but um, do, I, I wouldn't put a hard and fast um, uh, rule to that. And the main difference between Pudini and Chessine, I talked about that at one of our very early webinars that we did when we, uh, we have just one bottle of each. Uh, it's nothing like is ever that easy in a blind tasting. Um, but Pudini is more floral normally and it's got a steelier backbone. That's not going to show today because the vintage characteristic is going to trump that. Um, but you often get more floral notes and Chassagne is more of a, uh, a solid body, a little bit less uh, aromatic, but it does depend on where the, where the vineyards uh, come from, of course. Right, um, and Simon asks, is this Pudinese um, more Merceau than normal? And that is a func function of the location more than of the vineyard. That's quite typical of Combet. I do love Combet, uh, I must admit even though it perhaps isn't the most, uh, most classical typical. We thought we had our hands on a, on a pucelle, which would have been fun to do, but it, it disappeared, it melted out. We couldn't get enough of it to get samples to you in the, in the time frame. Grand, okay, on we go. And uh, um, now what, uh, what should we do next? I think let's uh, head on uh, into, Mer into Merso itself, of course, into an almost, almost, um, uh, next door, Vineyard de Merceau, Perrier. Right, we do love Merceau. Uh, sorry, I say that. I love Merceau, and uh, so I shouldn't uh, force that on other people. Why do I love it? Um, partly because it was the first village I got to know. Uh, my first few tastings, my very first two tastings ever in Burgundy were at the Comte de la Fond and Costurie. Uh, how's that? And uh, uh, also, what I love about it is the village wines are so good. Um, the ones down here, the, uh, uh, the bottom part have the more body and sort of less elegance of bouquet. And the ones up here at the top uh, have got uh, more of a, uh, a precise crisper style, a bit more mineral, but also a lot of body and lovely um, uh, aromatics and, and good weight on the palate. And Mercer was never greedy, it didn't ask for any Grand Cru's, certainly didn't get any Grand Cru's. Uh, but also, you could nowadays, particularly with a little bit of um, global warming helping in, you could actually extend what's really nice uh, in... Um, I'm going to change colour, I got bored of that. Let's go for a red instead. 
Here you've got in green, you've got the Premier Cruise. I wouldn't extend them lower down, but what I, you could reasonably do is continue a little bit higher up and a bit further around. So this area here, you could argue, Narvo, wonderful, Tesson, absolutely wonderful. Uh, Rougeau, I know less well because fewer people mentioned it, uh, set it apart. Um, Petit Charon and the higher slope part of Grand Charon, including the Clos de Grand Charon, in another village. Those could easily have been Premier Cruz. Uh, really smart wines. Um, amongst the Grand Cru, sorry, the Grand Cruz, the Premier Cruz, I beg your pardon, I'm claiming things incorrectly. Uh, the three favourites are Perrier, all of Perrier, really. The bottom bit, Perrier de Sioux, the top bit, de Sioux, the Claude Perrier, especially, and Eau Perrier. There are differences between them, but the quality is pretty even. In Genevrière, my second favourite, um, I'm going to put the heart between the two, but just perhaps Genevrière de Sioux, the upper part, is fractionally better. De Sioux does start, the slope does start to fall away, but it's all of it's good. And Charm, there is a clear difference. Charm, top part of Charm is really lovely. A bottom part, there is a fault line. The rock disappears down much further below the surface. The land is much flatter. And this bottom part, uh, let me draw the line again, um, pretty much on this line. Uh, sorry, go away, that last one. Uh, this bit along here, there is a fault line. So the Charm below that is definitely less interesting. Okay, um, and the characteristic of Merceau is this extra body, this softness, this roundness, used to be butteriness, um, but uh, uh, now that's less true and, and hazelnuts, our French sommeliers would, uh, would wish to mention. So we're in Perrier, I'll put the heart back exactly where this vineyard is. So it's in the upper part of Perrier. Um, click on the stamp, boing, and where somewhere up, up around there is where the De Monti holding is. It used to belong to the Chateau de Pinoni Maraichet. Let me talk to you about Etienne de Monti. Monti is a complicated character, but nothing like as complicated as his father was, Hubert de Monti. His father was a lawyer first, and, uh, but uh, a winemaker and passionate wine lover all his life. Uh, Etienne uh, went to law school, but then actually became a banker in Paris. And in 2001, uh, he started taking on more of a wine role. Already he'd taken over most of running the family domain from his dad, though uh, still based in Paris. But in 2001, um, he took over management of the Chateau du Pinot Maraichet, which was uh, owned by a um, some sort of financial institution or bank. I'm not sure exactly who it was. And they put him in charge. He made some big changes, got it going much better. And when they decided to sell up with various investors, 2011-12, uh, he uh, bought the property and he transferred one or two vineyards across the Domaine de Monti. Since then, more of them, but uh, uh, Perrier went across in 2012 and has been part of the Domaine de Monti uh, book ever since then. Uh, and, it, and it's a really good holding. It's not a huge one. It's just 0.45 of a, uh, of a hectare. And uh, Etienne leads, if you like, is to how the wines are made at the de Monti. Uh, his sister was heavily involved in the white wine making. Uh, Alix de Monti, she's married to Jean-Marc Rouleau. And so you had a feeling of a little bit of a Rouleau style, maybe, in the whites. 
Um, I wouldn't want to stress that too much because it's more important to say that these are De Monte whites. And the current um, technical director, head winemaker if you wish, but following the style that uh, the De Monte family are laying down, is um, a Californian called Brian Sieve, an Italian name originally. Uh, and he's doing really smart wines in both colors. Uh, but his take on the whites I find particularly striking. Uh, he does go some of the way down the re reductive style. Certainly, I wouldn't expect oxidation problems from his wines. And we have now in our glass, 2015 again, so, so nice ripe year. Uh, so we have the Masso Perrier, Domaine de Monti, 2015. It's about a quarter new wood. He picked early. The two wines which were picked in, in the month of August out of our six were the 2017 Saint picked on the 25th of um, August, or that, at least that's when um, Olivier started picking. And uh, at De Monti, they started picking on the 28th of August in, in 2015. So they're the sort of people, however, that start early and go on quite a long time and just pick each plot when they feel it's right. They're not in the fanatical must pick early crowd. Actually, I think there's more complexity, more interest for me on the nose on this wine at the moment than the Jean-Marc uh, Boyau wine. Uh, I like them both, but, uh, but I'm just going to give the edge on the nose, I think, to the, to the Merceau Perrier. Um, little bit, Simon, you mentioned gun smoke there. Yes, it's, uh, I think gun smoke rather than mustiness. So, so that is a little bit... Uh, um, of the reductive uh, character. Mm. Mm. There's higher acidity in this wine. I um, privilege that. This is a wine which would have been racked out of um, barrel after a year and will have spent then a few months in a tank. And if you keep your wine on all its lees in the tank afterwards, that's probably where the reduction mostly builds. Is a very good weight of fruit you expect from uh, from Massaperia. Um, so, if, you, if I'm going to give a characteristic then to these three top um, vineyards, Charm, Chenevrier, uh, Perrier, Charm is the fattest and softest, and, and sort of it's next to the upper bit of Charm, next to the upper uh, to Pinot Combet, and there's a, some relationship there. Chenevrier, I find really elegant, stylish. It's not as weighty as either of the other two. You can miss it in a blind tasting but it's got a real delicacy, minerality, um, uh, herbal quality that I really, really like. But it's not the one I would put up um, if I wanted to make a big, bold statement. Um, uh, and then the Perrier um, is the one that combines the weight of the charm, the detail, minerality, elegance of Genevrier, but with a great deal more weight behind. And because it's the weightiest, Sometimes, when things don't go well, it has been the wine from different producers which has most suffered from premature oxidation for me. But when it's really good, it's the one that will last the longest. Genevrier will last very well too. Um, I think uh, any of these wines um, will last, um, if they can get through this oxidation period without a problem, they will last um, really, really well. Um, the oldest Merceau Chenevrier I've um, ever tasted was um, a 69, uh, by which I mean 1869, of course. 
but that was shot. Uh, the oldest Mersos, I think I've had them from the late 20s, which has still been alive. And I went to see a producer who I didn't know before. And uh, they're partly in Merceau, partly in Pommel. They have a Merceau Goutte d'Or. And uh, the, at the end of the tasting, he said, uh, let's have a bottle of something older. And he cracked a bottle of Merceau Goutte d'Or 1976, that very dry, hot summer. And it was quite waxy and, and rich and uh, a little bit weird for the first two minutes. And then it just settled down into a most beautiful uh, wine, still in fine balance and, you know, could have gone on drinking that all day. So great white burgundy will last very well. Just been asked also to mention Merceau Blenny. It's high on the hill, it's a little bit tucked away. So traditionally it was thought to be a cooler area, but actually this bit here, Merceau Blenny, it does um, have, a, um, it, it forms almost an, uh, an amphitheater uh, in around here in that shape. So a little entrance coming in, in here and then steeper slopes all around. And so in a hot year, this really just becomes almost a furnace and the grapes do get beautifully ripe. But they're high on the slope and they never lose their uh, sort of limestone acidity. So I, I like Blenny. It, it probably doesn't quite match up to these guys, but it's a place to, to look for, uh, for the upcoming future. Um, and, uh, and I certainly like these upper slope uh, Premier Cruise. Um, so far, the lower slope ones have held up quite well. Uh, they haven't suffered too much. The soil is, is, is sort of deep enough and rich enough that they retain a bit of humidity. Um, but I probably got a slight preference for village mass higher up. Great. Well, uh, you, you're, you're chatting away nicely, as, 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 as I like you to do. So um, uh, keep, keep those questions coming and those just general chats amongst yourselves. Uh, James has asked me a tricky question about pricing. Uh, maybe we'll come on to that a little bit later on and, and bring everything in uh, together. Uh, but there are issues at the moment with the pricing of Burgundy. And um, for once, perhaps Burgundy will uh, take a leaf out of Bordeaux's book. Bordeaux's got a great vintage in 2019, from the sound of it. Not a huge amount of volume, but they're pricing it uh, well below 2018 because of the uh, current circumstances. And Burgundy having suffered from a number of really short crops, I mean disastrously short crops. They've been able to rebuild their stocks with big crops in 17 and 18, big crop on the vine in 20, a bit smaller it's true in 19, but I would like to see them um, um, coming down in, in the near future. I think they, they went up for exceptional reasons and they stayed up when perhaps they shouldn't have done and wanted to even increase their prices in 2018, which um, it's not that easy to justify. Good. Two more wines. We've already completed the hour. I apologize. I'm talking too much. Let's move on and um, bring up um, the map of Bone and move to the Bone Clodé Mouche, which is very much an emblematic white wine for Burgundy. So if you'd like to put that in your glass uh, now. And uh, Ronan may have left us for a minute, but I, yeah, he's got control of the maps. But I, uh, Jasper, I don't think I received a map of Bone. I'm did you Bone? I think I think I did, but uh, let me. I can send you one. Uh, yeah, send me one if that's okay. I will do that. Well, we'll um, uh, uh, we will we will chat away, and I will endeavour to use my multi male multitasking uh, skills to. 
send Rain and Matt at the same time. What I haven't managed to learn is, is how to get them up on screen here at, here at base camp. So uh, um, that's why I'm not doing it myself. Remember where I keep them, which I have remembered. Find them out of bone. Um, send away with Rain. Um, surely, oh yes, I do have a map of bone. On its way to you now. Great. Well, um, so you may know the story behind Drian's white um, bone, Claude Mouche, is that when he took over the family business in the 1920s, he was quite a young man, Maurice Drian decided he really liked this vineyard and he set out to buy as much of it as he, can, as he could. It's quite a big vineyard anyway. Uh, I mean, it's 25 hectares but they have more than half of that. They've got 14 hectares split approximately 50-50 between white and red, but it's the white which has really made the reputation. And the reason is that, as used to be the case, a certain amount of white wine was grown <coughs> uh, in, in amongst the Pinot Noir, and here comes the map, and um, uh, they used to just vinify it all together. And then one year, Maurice Durand decided to try a barrel uh, pull out the white grapes, make a barrel on its own, and he thought, wow, that's really great. Uh, and so after that time, he bought more land, he planted more in white, uh, and he started making it uh, on, its, on its own as a white wine, and it has become something that's pretty special. I have one criticism of it, is that it's encouraged lots of other people to plant lots of white wines um, in uh, bone, and very, very few bone vineyards lend themselves to white. Uh, I'll just put hearts up there. They, they may not be as striking as Claude Mouche's, uh, but Claude Saint-Landry here is a monopoly of Bouchard Perifis and is only white. Uh, Les Aigros, particularly the upper part, is definitely suited to white. Why it's, it keeps taking these extra um, hearts away for some reason. Um, oh, yeah, sorry, they, pop, they, they popped up now several times over. Uh, most of the rest of uh, bone should not be in white, but it frequently is because there's so much in the way of white Premier Cru in bone that, um, sorry, red Premier Cru in bone, that people have got so much to sell that they think, help, I've got too much, uh, why don't I plant up some white and I hope I'll get a, uh, some different sales out of that. And whites are easier to make, you can have a higher yield, you can take them to market earlier, and for some reason people seem to accept sometimes a higher price for the white than the red, and in most instances, you shouldn't. Now, not all Clé de Mouche uh, is white. I was actually the person I tasted with and had that Merceau in 1976 yesterday. They have red Clé de Mouche, and for them, they say 90% of the vineyards should be red, but I wouldn't necessarily agree with that assessment completely. Um, <clears throat> this is always one of the most powerful white wines, but still balanced. Uh, I used to think it was because I believed they had a bit of Pinot Gris planted in amongst the Chardonnay. I said that to Veronique Drain. She said, oh, do we? I wasn't not sure about that. And she's come back um, and, and, and said, well, we, there might be the odd bit, but it, it's not significant. Incidentally, the Clos des Mouches sounds like the Clos where the flies are, but uh, Mouche is the local um, Burgundy expression for a honeybee. And if you look at the label, you'll see some honeybees on it rather than flies. Uh, and there is a Clodé Mouche also in Merceau, a tiny one, there's a Clodé Mouche in Sontenay, um, a rather big one that makes pretty good wine, red wine too. 
So this is our Drouin Claude Mouche. Again, it's a 25% uh, new wood. Mm. A lot of weight to it. Um, this would never be a Pinot de Marichaud, probably not a Chassin. Could be a Merceau in style. Um, um, you're next to Pomar, of course, and then you've got Bolognese, so you're a long way away from Merceau. But up on um, uh, here in Claude Mouche, you're significantly higher up. The contour line showed a little bit, not as much as is actually the case, I suspect. If you come down to Les Epineaux, not in Boucherot, the ground has fallen away quite a bit. Um, but you've still got a reasonable amount of topsoil here. It's not a real hillside vineyard the way Agro is, or Monte Rouge, um, but it does seem to be a site that makes some powerful but still balanced uh, white wines, which uh, keeps some identity and uh, keeps them a good feeling of precision and a good acidity. Um, there isn't much Pinot Gris uh, planted in Burgundy, a few people up in the oak coat, but there are little remnants of it uh, kicking around here and there. Okay, um, so just leave you with that, uh, repeat the feeling that uh, too many people have gone white, even some in Lake Rev, which is a great red wine vineyard, uh, maybe right at the top you could, but basically let's keep bone as red as we can. I'm just going to scamper through the hill of Coton. Um, uh, I think uh, Ronan can supply me with a, a map of Coton, but we're not going to spend time on it. Um, as I decided not to put in any Grand Cru's in, uh, so uh, up will come our map. Um, obviously, Corton uh, Charlemagne, the Grand Cru, does cover three different villages, La Doire, Alos, and uh, uh, pernon Um So the Grand Crus are in the pinky, pinky purple uh, color you can see around here in the middle of the map. Um, da -da -da -da, um, all around here. The best bits are Le Charlemagne, part of Charlemagne, and along the top of the hill, Le Corton. The premier crews and two villages, Ladois and Penalvesles, have had the extreme intelligence to say, uh, let's decide for our premier crews whether they can be red or white, um, because some of them are clearly suited only to one colour. So Souffreti is a lovely white premier crew. Um, there, and also uh, around here, Les Crachons in, um, oops, sorry, didn't need to put that last heart in. I don't know why my hearts disappear for a bit. They'll probably come back in double. But anyway, those two vineyards, they have come back in double. Apologies for that. Um, uh, those two are the best Premier Crew whites um, for this part of the world. Otherwise, much of Pernod Vergeles. You can actually make um, uh, good whites in the, uh, Les Combottes around here, on Carada, the upper part, which is not Premier Crew. And, Il de Vergeles, I'd rather stayed in red, but you have some quite nice white there too. Good, good, good. That was just to complete the coat de bone. And now, as a special treat, we're going to head out of town, which we're going to um, head up into. Well, thank you for that comment, Richard. I appreciate that. Uh, we're going to head up uh, in, into um, the Cote de Nuit, where we're beginning to see a few more white wine vineyards. I was asked by an American publication to write an article and they gave me quite strict uh, guidelines. They said, we want an article on the whites of the Cote de explaining why there are some special sites and the terroir is just white, right to make uh, white wine instead of red and uh, explain why it was overlooked before and they're getting it correct now. 
And I had to come back to them and say, look, I can't write that article because mostly people are growing white wines in the Cote de simply because they wanted to have a bit of white and they could get away with it in certain spots. But there are very, very few vineyards in the Cote de which really ought to be white. But if we can have that Vujo map up, uh, I can show you one of them. Uh, <clears throat> otherwise, heading from south to north, Louis Saint-Georges has got some um, white wines, partly by accident when the uh, Pinot Noir in the Gouge vineyard uh, turned into a white grape overnight and became Pinot Blanc, or as we call it, Pinot Gouge, and various other people have reproduced that. There's one vineyard called Terre Blanche, which clearly is white wine uh, terroir. Going north, Vern Romany, you're not allowed whites uh, in the Appalachian. Chauvin uh, Musnier, you're not allowed whites. Chauvin Chantin, not allowed whites. The two where you can uh, are Vujo uh, and um, uh, uh, Maurice Anthony. I realized I made one slight error. In Chambon Musnier, there is one white vineyard inside the Grand Cru Musnier that's had permission to uh, make a white wine, which is either labeled as Bourgogne Blanc um, by the owners when it was Young Vines, or now it's back to being Musnier Blanc. It does make a lovely, gorgeous wine. I won't knock it, but I will say it is really a red wine uh, terroir. Um, and it was just that the family wanted a bit of, Madame de Vogue wanted a bit of white wine strip. Maurice Anthony, there are several sites which are quite like in white, of course, the famous Mont Louison from Ponceau, planted with Daligote, but also Dujac make a Mont Louison from Chardonnay. Here we are in Vougeot. So the map of the village looks a little bit different because the village of Vougeot, where the vineyards are, is almost entirely Grand Cru, Trade Vougeot. In the 19th century, there was quite a lot of white grapes planted here, uh, maybe even up to 40% at one point and they either were mixed with the reds or there was a bit of sparkling Vougeot or probably some white wines. Um, but otherwise now it can only be red. Next door we have in the orange color, uh, we have the um, um, Premier Cruz and then the green, the very small bit, which is uh, um, uh, in village, there's hardly any, it's of all the villages in Burgundy, it's the one with the least amount of village vineyards. So let's look at these four names of Premier Cru, Les Cras, La Vigne Blanche, Petit Vougeot, and Claude La Perriere. And we're going to taste a Premier Cru called Le Clos Blanc, which you don't find. But actually, what is Le Clos Blanc is an alternative name for La Vigne Blanche. It's called La Vigne Blanche because, as far as we know, it's always been um, white vines. We think the monks who first planted up both Claude Vougeot and La Vigne Blanche in the year 1110, so 910 years ago, we think uh, that they planted this in white then. And it is a different, there's some uh, oolithic limestone beneath. It is a different um, stratum of geology underneath Levine Blanche compared to all the rest of Vougeot. Um, and this belongs, it's a monopoly of Domaine de la Vougeray. And I've just been asking people because I, I want to put this information in the uh, second edition of the book, which is coming up. Um, I want to put the um, information of how much they own of each individual vineyard and the people from Vougeray kindly sent me back the form for that. And they say of Vigne Blanche or Clé Blanc, they own three hectares, 0 0.05. And I looked at that, and my eyes blinked because I happen to know this vineyard is only 2.29 hectares in size. So what were they doing? Were they telling porky pies? Have they added on something extra, which uh, uh, didn't, um, um, uh, belong. Um, and they have done that, but because the INAO, 
in their wisdom, have decided that this part of Lekha is actually the same white soil and should always have been part of the Ine Blanche. I may not have drawn the, uh, the line in the right place. It may be higher up. I need to get the, the detail on that. So as of the last three years, Lekha has got smaller and Ine Blanche has got bigger. As it happens, this is all owned by the men of Rougeray, and this was the bit of Le Crow they had in white grapes anyway. So they now have this entire triangle, all in white grapes. 95% Chardonnay, 4% Pinot Gris, 1% Pinot Blanc, and those bits are, are along the edge here, somewhere along there is where they've got the other grapes. At some point, somebody must have decided to do that just to see what it would do. And it makes one of Burgundy's most extraordinary white wines. When I, I used to work commercially with Domaine de la Vigeray and uh, right from the very first vintage, 1999, and I fell a little bit in love with uh, uh, all their wines, both colors. And I thought it's gonna be a hard sell because it was quite expensive, priced quite expensively. It's gonna be a hard sell. Because when you first taste this wine, the difficulty is it doesn't trigger a bell in your mind because you haven't tasted this area before. So you taste a new producer's Masso Perrier or Pudigny Combet, Champagne, Falatia. You have an expectation of what a Premier Cru Pudigny or Masso or Chassagne is going to taste like. When you come here, you taste something which you haven't had before. Knock that back and serve myself some. And so at that point, you've got a whole new phenomenon to go on. The other interesting thing that they've decided to do is they say, okay, Claude de Vougeot, this whole area of Vougeot was uh, founded by the Cistercian monks, monks from the monastery of Cito. And there's a forest of Cito with lots of old oak trees in it. We are going to buy the wood for our barrels for this wine and some of our other wines, but especially for this wine, will only come from the forest of Cito. So they buy the wood, they buy the trees, they choose the trees, they buy the wood, they age it for, air dry it for three years, uh, and then they hand it over to whichever tonnelier they decide to use uh, in order to make this particular wine. So, tuck into this, please. You do get a nice little overlay of wood, but it's not too dominant. It is expensive, but it's not uh, super, super expensive. Um, I don't have the prices on these wines, uh, but it certainly won't be the most expensive uh, of, um, of all the white wines that uh, will be up for offer tonight. But it will probably be, I mean, it's probably going to be the same price as a good Punini Premier Cru and a good Massa Premier Cru. Mm. You just can't put it into the same spot that you've got identified in your wine tasting brain of some of the other wines. But it's, it's got a lovely bouquet. It's got a clear weight of fruit. Um, it's got very good uh, acidity attached, um, but not out of balance. Of course, it's helped. It's 2014, so it is that most beautiful of recent vintages. And I can tell you, they have a very thorough website. This was picked on the 11th, 13th, 15th, and 16th of September. So they went back in and they picked it over several days to get each bit a, 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 at optimum. Um, and uh, as I think I mentioned, it's a third, just over a third of, of, of New Oak and uh, all from um, the Forest of Cito. So uh, I've actually overrun what, what, uh, the time that uh, I meant to spend, because otherwise food will be cooking below. Uh, I will cover some of your extra points. If you've had a chance now to taste and really enjoy all these wines, 
is, is unexpected, isn't it, Ian? Um, have a think, and uh, I'm going to ask, uh, I think we have Sophie looking after us tonight, I'm going to ask uh, Sophie to put up the poll, and um, if you would please choose your two favourite wines, limit it yourself to two, uh, and we'll have a minute on that to vote. I can't vote, Ronan can't vote, we haven't tasted them anyway, uh, and uh, so choose your two favourites and then uh, we'll ask Sophie to close the poll and then to show us the results. And I will, I will tell you my two favourites as well afterwards. Great, Whew, I can relax a little bit now. Um, but just to say, I'll hope to see some of you as well tomorrow night. Look at the um, Inside Burgundy uh, website and uh, join in the, the dry tasting about this issue of premature oxidation when we can go into that in much more detail. And I'm going to open up to myself probably in 96 and maybe a 2005 vintages which have suffered a bit from the oxidation problem. Okay, let's close the poll, please. And as soon as you're ready with the answers, here we have them. Da -da -da -da. So it's closer tonight than some of them. Uh, one, two, three, four, five. I can only see five Y. Oh, no, it's only because I haven't scrolled down properly. It is closer. So we'll do So the Santa Bar from Lamy got 14%. And then all the others are, uh, have got 33 to 44%. So we should really call it a tie, but honor to Jean-Marc Boyot, or indeed to Francois Alzang, who would have made that wine his wife Lydie, um, for uh, the Boyo Combat. Um, you may have heard it in my voice, I'm going to make one of my choices, it's definitely going to be the Vougeot Le Clos Blanc, uh, which is going to be my other choice. It's hard put to say. Uh, yeah, dearie, dearie me. I think I might go with the Domaine de Monti uh, Masso. Um, so I'm going for second and third of all your choices. Um, I hope, I mean, I'm not going to ask you this in a poll, but uh, I thought these were pretty, uh, pretty good white burgundy. I wasn't disappointed in the wines. This is what white burgundy can offer us today. What I really want about these wines uh, is for them to um, be able to last and develop, and then we get something special for, um, for the years to come. Um, just before I sign off, I'm going to join in. Um, Simon has also passed the thanks on to Ronan, all at 67. Great way to finish the week. And it's such a pleasure for me to be able to do this and know that 67 Pall Mall and Ronan in the, in the chair tonight and Sophie have put on such a professional performance. And I've just been shown a, a quick slide of how they now do getting the samples ready. And I know they're going to show that. They said it wasn't time to do it tonight. They're going to share that uh, around. Hey, Jasper, thank you so much, as always. I think whenever we do an event with you, it's always a special occasion, but I think we have a really special occasion coming up next, don't we? Well, we do. So um, the events we've got in the future are, I think my next one here is maybe not till the 15th of June, um, unless I'm missing one, what are we today? Or No, 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 I'm wrong. We have the 11th of June, we have biodynamics, biodynamic, uh, uh, wines and we will really look into what that means in Burgundy. The 15th of June I'll be in conversation with Thibaut Jacquet of Bono du Martre. On the 18th of June, you'll be fed up with me by then, but I've got Ben LaRue and uh, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to challenge him quite a bit since he's somebody I know really well and uh, he will stand up to it, uh, but I think he's one of the most exciting of the, sort of the 
newish crowd of uh, small to medium sized uh, uh, negotiants, and I'm really excited to look at his wines. And do we have a Cortal Charlemagne coming up as well? Uh, you know, the Bodo Dubartre Cortal Charlemagne, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, sorry, I, I skipped with Thibaut Jacquet. So, yeah. yes. um, and then on the uh, maybe on the 25th or maybe later, depending if we can get organized, we're going to do the wines at the Osbisterbone, and we'll have also as a guest Ludovine Grivo, really brilliant winemaker and a great communicator. So, I will try to take as much of a backseat as I can and let the Ludovine uh, speaks very good English um, uh, talk then. Um, and we, I've also will have a session on some of the new young generation that's probably going to be the 1st of July. So uh, I risk monopolizing uh, your time, but um, if, if you get anything like the same pleasure out of this that I get out of it, then, uh, then it won't be time wasted. So thank you all and see you next week and the week after and the week after and so on. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Enjoy. Go away and have some good food and lovely wine. Bye. <laughs>